Hi guys and welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Stocker and I'll be flying solo this week on the intro. My sidekick Lionel Bernie is not here. He's still trying to get his way back from the Tour de France at this moment after a pretty hectic three weeks there. But what I do have for you is a fantastic episode lined up. What I've got coming up for you is Juan Margarate. He's from Spain. He's from the Basque country. He is one of my favorite directors, sports directors that is. I know I've spoken to Tom Southern about sports directing, but what I thought I'd do with Wama was just go that step further because I love what he does, the way he directs. It's not just the logistics side of things, but he really gets inside the heads of the cyclists, the riders, the guys in our team. Well, especially me and I know Mike Woods and I think everyone. He's got a great feel about it and I really wanted to ask him how he really does balance that how he gets in there, how he's able to keep that good relationship with us, but the professionalism of his job. So guys, sit back and enjoy this one. This is a real favorite of mine. You're going to have to excuse the audio. I made a bit of a boo-boo with the uh, the recording on this. I think it's still worth listening to, and I still think it's very good audio quality. So, well, not very good. It's still very listenable. So without further ado, I bring you Wama Garate. Manuel Garate, or as I like to call you, Juanma, as everyone likes to call you. Juanma is better. Juanma. It's more familiar. You're my sports director at EF Education First. But more than that, you're, I, I see you as a special sports director, and you're the person I thought of when I wanted to interview a sports director. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yes. You're from the Basque country in Spain, so that's his accent. He speaks perfect English in my eyes but you're going to love that Basque accent. You are, put it too much, you are putting too much pressure on me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I spoke to Tom Southern a few weeks ago and I thought he was great to talk about the nitty-gritty of a sports director, what it's like driving the car, what the setup is, um, all the little bits and pieces. But then I thought something extra, the job has something extra, and that's what I wanted to speak to you today about. Before we get into that, now, I want to set this up for everyone something really special because I have to set up who you are. I want to take everyone back to 2009, stage 20 of the Tour de France. It's a famous stage, it's the last, the pinnacle stage before they go to the Champs-Élysées and it's Mont Ventoux, hilltop finish. The previous finish to there was back in 2002, so seven years before, and Richard Varonk won that stage. It only been up the Mont Ventoux finish eight times before in the history of the Tour de France. So it's very, very special. It's a very hard climb. Juanma was riding for Rabobank at the time. And I'm going to let him tell the story a bit, but I'll just give you a bit of background just to build up what's happening here. Rabobank had had a pretty shit tour. Exactly. Dennis Menchov was their hopes. He was sitting back in 50th. Gersink had crashed out, broken his wrist. So the team, Juanma was a super domestique, a very difficult position I can imagine. The team had probably asked him, yeah, you've got your opportunity, slip in some brakes, do something. But the morale was gone, the team was lost, it's stage 20, the hardest race, the hardest stage of the tour. And did, for everyone to cast their minds back to that tour, Alberto Contador and Lance Armstrong were having an internal fight in their team. They were trying to fight each other, more or less, and they were right behind Juanma on this stage. 
Where I want Wamar to, to pick up is 16 guys have gone down the road. They start Monvon 2 with about 5 minutes lead on the peloton. Wamar decides to attack the 16 guys and takes two guys with him, Tony Martin and Christophe Riblon. As they come out of the trees for the final 6k to go, pace had been on and just, well, just with the three of them, and there's only two guys left, Wama and Tony Martin. What happened from there, and with that whole build up, take me through the mindset of you leading to this, this moment. Uh, yeah, once we were in two uh, on the final, on the last kilometers, uh, I look at him, I look at Tony and he was, I think he had only one tempo, right? And uh, I tested him a couple of times changing tempo and I saw him that he couldn't really change tempo and uh, he had a really high tempo, that's true, because he even put a 53 on on the second part of Mont Ventoux for one kilometer and I was I was suffering a little bit there. And uh, But honestly, I only had in mind to don't lose the race. Because it happened to me two, the, two years before in San Sebastian, which is the, the race of my dreams. I am I'm from Pais Vasco, as you said, and I, I grow up uh, going with my sandwich and my backpack uh, up the mountain, up to Jaiskibel, to see the race every year, every summer. So uh, then I became professional, which it was a dream for me, and then I, came, I was racing that, ra that race, and I even first time I, 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 I rode, that race, I, I won the mountain prime. I was super proud of it. I mean, it was kind of a dream. And I was in, I was in a position to win the race on, in 2007, and I, I lose it. I arrived with another rider, and I I was too enthusiastic in the final um, because everything came into my mind, and I did a big mistake in the last 300 meters, and I lost the race. So, and it was something that uh, I I couldn't forget, and I, I still I don't forget that, right? So I. Uh, I at that moment, at six k's to go or eight k's to go on Mont Ventoux, I it, that thing came to my mind. I said, "Come on, you cannot lose today, right?" So second is not enough, especially because I, w I won in, at the Vuelta España one stage and at the Giro two. And you know that sometimes when you, I mean, not sometimes but always when you have a win at the Tour and at, and at the Giro and at the Vuelta, everybody's asking you when is going to come the win at the, at the Tour, right? And uh, it's like if I was going to say, when you have two children, everyone's asking, when's the third coming? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I have three kids. So, no, and, and so I, I, I asked myself, don't do mistakes in the final part. That's the only thing I was preparing um, every time to, my, to myself, like, okay, stay cool, stay concentrated until the line and, and keep going, right? And it's exactly what I did. I mean, I... Uh, one and a half kilometer to go, I hear in the radio that one rider was coming, was Pelizotti was coming really close to us, like he was catching us. Said, so now if I don't go, it's over. I went, uh, 900 meters to go, and we turned left, and it was really a lot of headwind. And I, I look back two times, and I saw Tony Martin that he didn't, he didn't react to my attack. So that that's mean that if you are with another rider and he's not following you, that is because he, he doesn't have power enough, right? And 900 meters to the finish. And I look back two times and because he had a high tempo on his legs, he kept me every time at the same distance because the wind. That's why I decided to stop again. Mm. And because I couldn't, I couldn't lost. 
I couldn't lose the race. It's like um, now you need to be sure that you win. And if you have a rider 30 meters behind you for 700 meters, maybe he's coming double speed in the last 200 meters and you don't see him coming and in them you lose the race. And then I decided to stop again. And um, because the chaser, Pelizzotti, he couldn't make it anymore. That's why I decided, okay, I'm, I'm gonna stop. Tony, he, he thought that I was bad and he accelerated and I, I used him to stay in the wheel until the last corner. In the headwind. Yeah. In the headwind, exactly. This is what, this is exactly why I want to bring this victory up to you. Apart from the victory, I think this sets up exactly what I want to talk to you about today and this side of you as a sports director. If anyone can try and put themselves in Kwama's shoes, very difficult because not many people have ever been in that situation. There's so much going on and I try to build up all the extra pressure from the external before the stage. You started then giving us a little insight to your own internal tickings. Okay, I want to do this because I don't want to lose again. San Sebastian, it's Mon Von Tu, first Spanish winner ever. I'm sure all this is subconsciously going in your head. They're coming, Armstrong, Pelizzotti, they're 30 seconds behind. But the clarity, the ability to think so clearly clearly in that moment, because nine times out of 10, a lot of guys would attack and they'd use their bullets. They wouldn't think anymore. Head down, bum up, 900 meters to go. And like you said, if someone's, you know, the rabbit chasing the, the mouse, hmm. maybe it's easier for Tony to get you. Yeah, but exactly. that, that ability to think in that heat of the moment, I think is what makes a real, win, a real winner and a real leader. And that's exactly what I wanted you to say. I'm, I'm so happy you went down that line because something really amazing about you as I've been able to experience as a sport director, as being a receiver of you as a sports director is, is that ability to connect to riders. And I think this is a really important part of a sports director. And I know you value that very highly because not that all sports directors don't, but I think you've been able to balance that really intricate sort of balance between too close to a rider and mm. too far away. That's important. It's very important. So just to, one more little background for everyone just to understand Plumar before, just to get a picture of how he's been able to build up this. This, this win, I think, is an integral part, but his career is also very integral. 14 years as a pro. 26 Grand Tours, the Giro being his absolute favourite, mm-hmm. eight times doing the Giro, four times in the top ten in GC, he won a stage there like he said before, but also the Mountains jersey, so he's a bit of a climber. <laughs> he then went and did you know, the Tour six times as well, took a stage there, the Mont Von Tour, which we spoke about, 12 times at the Vuelta, We also took a stage and was 15th on GC, which a race, you've told me, you never really focus on the GC. Yeah. Rode with Lamprey from 2000, Sonia Deval 2005, Quickstep 26 to 28, Rabo, and then retired in 2000, well, the start of 2014, so a really long career. But I think more important in that career is the time in a Grand Tour, the pressure situations, the dynamics of a team, but also the difference in teams over that span of career. So what I want to ask you today now, I guess, is run me through that two-year period from retiring to becoming a DS, and then as you became a DS, how did you want to approach this? Is it the way you are now, is that exactly what you envisioned, or things have developed over the time, and you've started getting into that personal relationship more? 
to understand that I need to go back a little bit to my career so when I became a pro I became a pro in Italy uh, so as a neo professional rider I was uh, riding in Italy full of Italian riders around and I I was the last man for Gilberto Simoni to win the Giro d'Italia in 2001 my second professional year so uh, I had to grow up really a fast because to be a foreign rider in an Italian team doing the Giro and being the last man for you for your captain is not easy and you know how the cycling world uh, works so I had to develop my mind fast and I had to grow up fast and then uh, the day the year after is when I did fourth in the Giro and I I became a kind of a team leader when it was my third year professional in Italy in an Italian team when I was from Spain, right? So I had to mature fast. So I was uh, a teammate. I was the last man for a winner of a big tour. Then straight after I had to be a, a, a captain, a leader in the team. So I, I did almost everything in three years. Then I, I tried again to to be on the podium in a big tour. I couldn't. and um, so. And I couldn't find my real space in cycling until at the end of my career I discovered, I said, okay, helping a big name, helping a big rider to win a big tour, that's my job. And I found my space there. So to do that, I had to develop really good the vision of the race. I had to uh, be a good leader because I was the road captain as you are now, Mitch, in the team. So I had a lot of responsibility, not to win the races, but just to help the big leader to win it. At the what race. point in your career was this? Because, as I said there before, you weren't, you said you weren't able to go that next step. But for a lot of people, I think they get caught up in, if you're finishing top 10 in Grand Tours, a lot of guys hang on to that. And they hang on to it for the rest of their career and try and always beat that. But you were humble enough to just go, I get it. I'm going to step away and this is going to make me more happy than keep striving for something I know I can't achieve. When was that in your career? I mean when I became to Rabobank. Yeah. So after I, that I was in quick step, I was still a, kind of a leader there, some some races, especially at the Giro. But because quick step is a team that uh, doesn't take care really a lot about uh, big tours, um, because I saw my limit too, then is when I decided, okay, now I don't feel comfortable with that position. I need to change team and I need to have a different role. Mm -hmm. That's when I decided to, to change. I developed that part of my personality into the final car, part of my career. And because the first part of my career, I had to grow up really fast. Uh, both things create a combination that I can, I, I could read the race really good. Especially the last six years of my career, when I stopped it, I I didn't stop my career in a really good way. I mean, I had a discussion with my last team, and uh, I had to stop and to leave cycling from the back door, and uh, so I disappeared without to say goodbye, right? And it cost me mentally uh, energy, and uh, and I couldn't really deal with that, and I I I need some help to came out of that. Uh, black hole, right? Um, so this was 2014. I was still a professional rider, but I decided at the end of the year, okay, I can't continue like this. I am gonna stop. 
so in 2015, I decided, even at, at the end of 2014, I decided, okay, uh, I want to know how a DS is prepared. And I am going to do the courses by my own because I want to be not ready, be, not ready because I didn't have in mind to come back on cycling because I was cold. I was, uh, how you say, it? I was uh, mentally tired. Mm. So I didn't want to be in cycling anymore at that moment. But at the same time, I wanted to know how a DS is prepared. Mm. So that's why I decided to do the courses and I did the, the national courses and then I came to Swiss. And I remember that I was the only one in Switzerland doing the course without team. Yeah. I was the only, I was like a was kind of freelance. Was everyone asking you that? What are you doing? Yeah. Are you on a team next year? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Saying, no, I'm doing it myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That question, you know. Look, when you do the when you do the inscription to the to do the course in the at the UCI, you need to choose if you are independent or you are part of a team. If you are a part of the team, the course is shorter. But if you are independent, the course is a kind of two weeks. So my cross was okay, obviously independent, two weeks, right? But when they saw my name and they saw that I have done 15 years as a rider, they they called me and it's like. Um, I think uh, you don't need to do the long <laughs> course. I said, yeah, but I am independent, right? So yeah. I did the, the right description. Right? Yeah. So it's not, yeah, yeah. So they gave me the opportunity to do the short one because they thought that I had some knowledge, right? <laughs> so that was funny. It was funny because I, I had the hotel and, and, and everything booked for two weeks. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> thanks to the UCI, finally, I can <laughs> say that one time. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I was ready. I did the courses and I was ready. and. Uh, and uh, Charlie Begelius informed me mm. a week after the course, but he didn't know that I was doing the course. Did you know Charlie before? Yeah, as a rider, yes. Yeah. We have done a couple of races together. I mean, never... But like personally, like in the race, would you go, hey, Charlie, catch yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, kind okay. of, kind of. We didn't have really a, a big relation, but because we were doing more or less the same races during the same year. Same job, more or less. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's why we, we knew each other. And uh, he phoned me and I was not ready. To do this and I said okay uh, let me think about it uh, yeah, and at the end uh, I think I I did the right thing because it was the way to come back on cycling and to be healthy again well that's said PK the voice of radio tour interrupting our episode here just to remind us to tell you that life in the peloton this week is sponsored by our friends at beer 52 and uh, well the summer is giving way to autumn and so logically cycling is gearing up for the spring classics as well as the giro d'italia and the vuelta a España. and if you're planning to sit down and watch some of the racing on a weekend afternoon you may want a, a nice beer to accompany the cycling and beer 52 are offering eight craft beers sourced and curated from some of the best breweries on the planet for free all you need to do is pay the £5.95 for postage by going to beer52.com slash cycle now Richard we've enjoyed deliveries from Beer 52 over the past months haven't we well for the last couple of years actually yes um, and as long with your creative beer that you get every month you get a magazine Ferment and an article in the recent issue of Ferment um, is by Owen Walsh, a friend of the podcast, who invited us to do an event in Brussels, actually, when the Tour de France started there last year. And he's written a big piece, um, a really, really good piece about the links between beer and cycling. 
uh, with uh, an emphasis on Belgium, really. Um, the relationship between beer and cycling in Flanders is more overt, he says, and he goes into a lot of detail about some of the, the classic races in Belgium, his own experiences watching them, and the links with beer. He talks also about Maze, the uh, alcohol-free lager that sponsor De Koenig Quickstep, and about why they chose cycling as, as a vehicle for them to promote their beer. So a very interesting piece in Ferment with uh, some lovely images of cycling in there as well by Owen Walsh. Well, you get a copy of Ferment magazine with each case as well as a tasty snack. And if you want to change your membership or pause or cancel at any time, you can do so. So if you'd like to get your first case of Beer 52 beers for just the cost of postage, which is £5.95, go to beer52.com slash cycle. That's beer52.com slash cycle. This episode is also supported by Harry's, Harry's Razors. And Richard, you're a Harry's Razors customer, aren't you? The only one on the podcast, Lionel, because I'm the only one who uses a razor. Yes. Um, don't imagine Mitch has much call for a razor either, does he? Um, maybe to shave around that wonderful moustache of his. But yeah, I've been a Harry's customer for a couple of years since they began uh, advertising in the podcast. Very satisfied as well. Excellent. Well, Harry's are offering a trial set for just £3.95. And in that trial set, you get the weighted ergonomic handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. And if you want to uh, try out Harry's razors, go to harrys.com slash cycling now. That's harrys.com slash cycling. I think when you come in, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the situation and you come in with this idea, oh, this is what I can imagine, you come in with this idea, you're fresh, I've got these ideas, this is how I want to do it, you really probably looked at a lot of directors that you thought were great, that's what I want to be, guys you didn't like, you don't want to be that, but suddenly you're in this team, there's different dynamics, different pressures, how were those first few years finding your feet but still trying to keep on your own path of what you wanted to be as a director, what you wanted to present and actually finding out that maybe the things you want to do the team wasn't happy with or didn't want you to do so you had to alter who you were to ultimately find you know shape who you how you want to be a director. How were those first few years? Just to make it easy it's like when you came out of the university and you go to the uh, uh, rear uh, wall to work and then you start working and you realize that you don't know nothing. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's sad to say, but it's, uh, I, as I said, I did 15 years as a rider. One, one year working for Unipublic, Vuelta España, as a radio tour. And then I became a DS and I realized that I didn't know anything. Mm. Anything. I mean, I had the license, I did the courses but you don't know the real life, as it, as it is when you came out of the university, right? Mm. So you are not ready for the real life as it is. So I had to learn from zero all the logistical stuff that it is behind, that as a rider you don't know. And you need to understand riders, you need to understand uh, stuff, you need to manage a lot of people around you, and things that you are not habituated to work with, for example, simple things like Excel, right? Or, I don't know, uh, Managing, I think a big point there, managing staff, being a, a exactly. like managing people. Exactly, so you can have the skills or the personality to deal with people, 
to be a leader or not. But then you, you, the practical thing, which is just to open a computer and to go into the systems, mm. different systems to uh, rules, you know, organizers, things that as a writer you don't know, mm. uh, then it's a, it's a new world for you. Mm. So you need time and you need help to do that. Tell me a little bit about, taking it back a step now, how times have changed. And if you think about when you were a pro writer, and you, you've told me a little bit about this, and I want you to explain this to the people that the, the life of a pro, when you were a pro, was very different to the life of a pro now. You know, for instance, you know, a good story you say is when we come back, we're very shut off, we, we concentrate on recovery, um, you know, every 1%. Give everyone, if you can explain a little picture of what life was like as a pro when you were coming through, and then what you experience now as a director looking at us as writers. I remember the riders sitting outside at the corridor at the hotels talking with each other mm. uh, at night after dinner. Different teams. With different teams, exactly. Uh, front door of the hotel, like uh, there, at, until maybe, I don't know, 11 at night, right? So, and this doesn't happen anymore. Or, for example, as I told you, I think yesterday, uh, like, to see the riders going in the afternoon to the mechanics, not only because you have a problem, just because you want to say hello to them or just spend 10 minutes with them, right? So I can see you guys going to them like when you have a problem, not especially the, the new riders, right? Because you, you have lived the transition in cycling too. Uh, and, I, and, and the new riders, they, they never talk with the mechanics if they don't have a problem. Mm. So because now the new technologies, you have some everything in your hands. So with the telephone, you send them a message from your room, and they put and you. I don't know. They they check your bike with a message, right? Put the wheels in or whatever. Whatever. Yeah. It's like I, I would like to have a lower profile wheels or higher profile wheels for tomorrow, or or please more pressure in my tires or whatever. But you you use the messages. Why you don't go there? You see them, and maybe you bring them a couple of beers one afternoon, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it every day, but yeah. but you know sometimes. So the the um, the social distancing that we are having now with the COVID, it is uh, normal in the last years between you guys, but not because the COVID, just because the new technologies you have in your hands. Yeah. And it's something that we didn't have it before. For example, for instance, like to phone home mm. when we were at the races, we had to wait until the cabin was free. Yeah. So it was a long line in front of the t public telephone yeah. to phone home. <laughs> and it was a big thing. Sounds like, crazy. But, race. And yeah. I am not too old. I mean, only 44, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, then, now explain then, because I think this is something you do very well. This is what I was trying to allude to before. You've been able to cross that bridge between the human element of us riders and staying in touch with us and then not getting too close to us, but being able to install this level of trust and I was speaking to Mike Woods today about it and he said, I was asking him a point, I said, have you ever seen Wama actually angry, pissed off? He said, yeah, I've seen it once in Catalonia. <laughs> he said, yeah, two guys went up the road, uh, a brake went up the road, 60, 70 guys, and we had our two G sites, GC guys in the front and the rest of the team are in the back. I said, what do you do? do you, you know, I can't even imagine it. Not to say you're a soft softie, but there's a different element of it. There's, you, 
you've been able to create, especially for me and I guess for Mike and I think a lot of other guys, this element of I've let you down. There's not I'm I'm angry and I'm shouting at you, but like, hey guys, you're better than this. And I expected more. And for me, that's got a lot more weight coming from you because you're able to. Is that something you think about doing, creating with the writers this relationship? It is always a different ways to approach a problem. Um, my style is. Uh, I think I can't have the solution shouting you, even if sometimes looks necessary. But maybe looks necessary because you are angry and maybe at the moment you solve the situation or you think that you solve the situation but doesn't resolve it at the, in the long term. For me, it's better to try to teach you uh, what is going wrong and how we can do it better. So I am more, my, I'm always a more, I have always more a positive style. So I try to look always the solution and not only the problem. And um, that's my personality. I mean, everyone has his own style. I'm, Maybe another one thinks that no, uh, that's not the way. It's better if we push them uh, yeah. hard, deep. Yeah. And uh, it's like, uh, uh, and that's the solution for somebody else, but n it's not for me. Is that something you experienced as a writer? Because I get the feeling uh, back in your time, there was a lot more direct um, direction, like you, I use the word negative pressure. You do this or this is going to happen, opposed to, I believe you can do this. Is, was there, was there, did you experience the type of director you are when you were coming through? No. 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 But then it depends with uh, which writer you are talking with. Like, for example, I know that Danny Martinez, if I am pissed off with him, because I was pissed off last year at Tour Colombia, he reacted really good. And he said, I really needed that. So, but you know, you, 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 I use it when I know that he's ready and he's sleeping, but only when he's ready. Mm. Because if I am using when he's not ready, has the uh, opposite uh, reaction that I'm, I'm pushing more down him. So I need to be sure that he's ready before I push really deep. Right, and I was I was really angry with him. And last year to Colombia, I was also really pissed off one day. Mm. And uh, and uh, the, 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 the day after, we we almost won the to Colombia JC. So it worked, but we you cannot use it every day. That's right, and it also comes that he has to also respect what you're saying. Otherwise, it just if you use it every day or he doesn't really respect you, it doesn't have the weight um, yeah. of of that comment. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it's not that I am not pissed off. I mean, I, I have three kids and you can, maybe next time you can ask them, uh, uh, Mitch, and uh, maybe they are going to see, a, they, they see the, in a different way my personality because at home, you know, everyone is different. Or, uh, but it's, exactly as you said, you, you need to use it when, it when it's really necessary. Yeah, it's not that I am never pissed off. I am. And sometimes I am. Um, I don't know if you saw Movistar uh, video. And uh, I only saw a little bit of the documentary. I haven't seen it yet. No. The documentary. It's fine. The way to see the way how the sports director is reacting in the car, and the way how he's talking to the writer in the radio. So he's almost broken broken the glass of the the window of the of the car, 
and then he's talking in a different way. So it doesn't mean that we are not pissed off, but we everyone is has his own uh, style mm. to communicate. And that's and that's very powerful to also catch yourself before you grab the microphone and speak. It's almost it's almost nice in a way that the microphone isn't direct because you have that moment to explode, natural reaction in the car, uh, the chimp reaction, just ah, and then okay, now I'm going to speak. That wasn't a great move. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was a writer too, and uh, and I if if you hear somebody shouting in the radio, it's easy you take it out, yeah, and you put it in, and maybe you you feel better in the car because you did it, but doesn't have an impact. No. Maybe a, a five seconds impact, mm. but that's it. Let's talk about the preparation as a director, and this is something that I think you do really well. Um, let's talk specifically about the Vuelta España. Um, a race I've done with you two times and you spoke a little bit about yesterday saying it's, it's a nice little touch that I think you have that I had a, when I first started professional but it doesn't really happen that often now is the director passes by the room just to sort of say hi maybe actually check in with someone who needs it but most of the times literally say hi pop your head in maybe chat for 5-10 minutes and that's it see someone face to face but you told me that's only possible if you're prepared tell me a little bit about that I mean, a, a big tour needs a lot of preparation. The team we have, right? I I don't have a team that I can put seven riders in the wind all day long to keep the position and to bring our leader uh, every day there protected. We, I can do it one, two, three days, but not every day, right? So uh, this means that I need to look for a point in which I need to move my team. I'm gonna use you and in a specific moment to bring my leader at a certain point and in a good position, right? So I, for that, I need to really study really good the parkour and to save your legs as much as I can. In a way that we are gonna, still we are not gonna miss the point, still we are gonna be there, but we didn't lose energy before, right? And to do that, you need time. You, you need to prepare the race. And you need to arrive there to the there to the races with the homework done at home. And I can tell you that I didn't know that uh, this work exists before I became a DS. I still probably not everybody does it, but at, at the end it's my style and I like to go to the races with uh, the homeworks done and uh, the logistical stuff prepared. And uh, like this I have time every day after the stage to go through the rooms and speak with you I don't do it as you said every day but sometimes I need more time with you because maybe I remember how you were two years ago at the Vuelta when you had to be uh, the road captain and I put pressure on you and you had another two riders around you that they also play that role in the races and they are good also to do that job and you were feeling yeah, you needed some help let's mm. say that like that so that's why I spent really a lot of time with you trying to keep you motivated and sure about your job right and uh and maybe in, a, in the ne next year maybe i was not with you as long as i was the year before right because it was maybe not really necessary so but for that anyway to do it you need to be ready you need to be concentrated that the, the job is done and you have time to do it otherwise you finish the race and you need to go to your room to prepare the day, the day after and 
And, <laughs> and you lose touch with the riders. And even though you think you're doing, well, this is my opinion, even though you think you're doing the best you can, you know, you're preparing the stage and everything like that, sometimes, as a rider, sometimes it's more important that you're still in touch with the director, the guy who you want to have faith in, more than the course. Because if you listen in the radio or you have that belief of what he's saying, that's more important to me than knowing the course and every corner and every angle of wind because it goes sometimes goes in one ear and out the other. But if you tell me something that I really believe, it sinks in. And I think, again, it's a fine balance because if you disregard the course and just 100% belief, you're also out in the wind as well. So... Also on that on that point, you sort of alluded to it there, building a roster, and I think this is something you do really well. Um, I'm not saying all directors don't do this well, but something I've experienced with you is that you start with you know your your leader, and then you start with the guys to support him. How do you go about building? If you can choose it, it's not always like that. If you can choose your team for a, a race, is it something you put a lot of effort into and thinking about, or you just have to get the riders you get? It's complicated. I mean, it is not only one race at the uh, during the year. I mean, at the end, the calendar is full of races and uh, we have 30 riders and we need to divide the goals, we need to divide the calendar between the riders and uh, the program. It's not easy because, of course, you want to have always the best possible roster in, at every race, but that's not possible. Uh, but at the end, uh, depends of how the season, especially at the Vuelta, which is the last big tour of the year. So when you look back and you see how was the Giro, how, how was the Tour, and then you can you can uh, prepare a, a, the final roster, right? For example, this year is going to be different. I mean, our main main goal is the Tour de France, and probably this year we we are going to use the Vuelta in a different way, like to give the opportunity to the young riders to develop and to to learn for the future. So every year is different, and. Uh, and, but especially, I mean, for example, if you if it is in a standard year that you go to the Vuelta to try to do a good GC, like for example, it was last year, then we had a Rigo, then you start to build up the team around him, like, okay, maybe we, we can't bring a sprinter because the team is, we need some more climbers. Then, obviously, you have to know uh, in advance the parkour of the stage, I mean, the stages, the profiles, to see if it is really uh, hilly. Obviously you need people that can climb better, but you cannot forget that you need people to work on the flat or to lead the team or with experience to see what is happening in front of the bunch and to give me the information I need. So that's the, the final combination. Road captain, guys with experience, team leader, uh, climbers around him, and then um, a domestic riders with um, uh, like we say, uh, honest riders that they 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 have full commitment for the leader, right? And can think for themselves. I think that's a that's a really big someone that you can delegate a bit of load to. Someone that you don't have to continually instruct. You know, you have to go on the break, or do I go on the break? You know, guys, you can smell the race themselves a little bit. But you know what, Mitch? I mean, when you are at the S and you are in front of the riders at the meeting every every morning in the bus. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking to your faces, boys, and I see a guy that is 35 years old that has a lot of experience. But in, in the other side of the bus, it is one guy that is 22 years old, and he doesn't know how to prepare a rainback. 
A rain bag is a bag that we have in the car with the clothing when it's raining and uh, you need when it's raining they call the car the riders and we give them rain jackets or whatever they need but this bag has to be ready before the race with the spare shoes inside and things like that right so i have riders in front that they don't know if they have a mechanical problem they need to stop on the right hand side on on the left hand side of the road so can you imagine if i start at the meeting talking about Okay, guys, when you have a mechanical problem, you need to stop <laughs> on the right-hand side of the bus. So you are going to look at me like, what are you saying? Stop wasting my time. Yeah, exactly. But this is the reality. Mm. This is the reality. I mean, sometimes we have riders in front of us that the, the, they have a lot of potential. That's why they are professionals. But we need to start our meetings from really low mm. to teach them how it works. <laughs> and it's difficult, I can tell you. Yeah, because you would forget, you just continually forget they don't know that. I even forget that too, just with young guys who come in, or just even, you know, Jim, Jimmy Whelan's a great example. He's not, well, he is young too, but he just came into the sport so late that stuff I would have learned even in club racing, he was still learning. And it's, it's difficult to even take your mind back to that, you know? Hmm. Packing a rain bag for you and for me, it's just like, oh, of course I'd do that. If it, some guys just put an empty bag in there. <laughs> <laughs> I saw some empty bags yeah. sometimes. And you want them to learn the hard way, but unfortunately sometimes learning the hard way could mean the end of their race. So you sort of have to coach them some of the way. I want you to talk now about, and we started talking about this, this is why I want to talk about Mon Bon too. This headspace and this crucial thinking in the moment and knowing that moment and I've done an amazing podcast with Mike Woods after the Vuelta two years ago mm. <laughs> stage he won in the Basque country for me I was had nothing to do with that race I was just in the bunch and I got dropped but I had my headphone in and I could hear it and as the story unraveled and if anyone hasn't heard that podcast you've got to go back and listen to it with Mike Woods because <laughs> he explains the story amazingly and now we're going on the other side the man in the car Mama was there behind that and he was instructing Mike keeping his head right and just being that level-headed person in that moment and using some fantastic words to inspire him that he knew he had in his back pocket for the whole race mm. but he saved How that How you knew that? <laughs> he saved that one comment which I don't know how you held it because it would have been a hundred times before to say this one comment yeah. that, that ignited the final bit of juice in Mike's legs at 200 metres to go in the race. So apart from all that, how do you feel the moment and how are you in those moments? How are you, this is keeping that head and do you love those moments? Yeah. That moment probably was the highlight of my life as a DS, the highest moment. I mean, I, I came from Poland and I landed in Bilbao and I took my car and I went, this is a month before the Vuelta or three weeks, and I went to that climb to the top. And I went with Borja together, the, uh, bus, the bus driver. Uh, we went there and it was a sunshine day and we went up with the car. And we, as much as I went driving my car to the top, I said, this is for Mike. This is a stage for Mike, and I, I, I had that in my Tell mind. Tell me why, because I don't know, no one's <laughs> going to know how hard this climb is. How hard is yeah, it? Yeah, it's super hard, it's, it's super, super steep. Hard. 
and it was a day for the breakaway. Yeah. I was pretty sure that it was a day for the breakaway, and I, I could imagine Mike not anymore in GC, and I thought that it was a good start for him because it was a climb in the beginning, and that, I mean, the break was about legs, not about luck, right? To be into the breakaway of the day, sometimes you need luck, sometimes you need legs, good legs, and this day was, the. Uh, uh, to be in the break, you needed good legs, and it was a high-quality breakaway. And that was my thoughts three weeks before the race. So I was I was doing the scouting of this climb, and uh, I saw the the last straight uh, 200 meters part of the race, and uh, it was super steep, like probably more than 15 percent. And I it was sunshine day, super super good. So you could see from far away where where the finish line should be, right? So three weeks later, we were doing that, that race, and it was good weather, but uh, from halfway of that mountain to the, till the top, you couldn't see anything. It was a uh, fog, that's the... That's the fog, yeah. yeah? Yep. It was full, and so you couldn't see in front of you more than 30, 40 meters. And, on, and I was behind him with a car, and I couldn't see him, obviously, and, but I couldn't even see the TV, and I... So I knew that they were in, in the last 500 meters of the race, or last kilometer, let's say. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I remember that one of the last things I said to Mike, and it's like, Mike, uh, count until 10 men, or count until 20, I don't remember, and you, you are at the finish line. But I didn't know if it was a kind of 200 meters to go, or 300 meters to go, right? So he said, it's funny, I think probably he said it, that he counted until 20 and then he couldn't see the finish line and he restarted again from zero, like one, two, three, come on. <laughs> and then finally he saw the finish line. So It is, it is look, we, we don't need to go into the intricates of the story because it's an amazing story and Mike tells it very, very well in the podcast. So to get the full background of that, but the thing I really like is feeling the moment and, and coaching it and three weeks before you saw that moment and that comes from, I think, that time as a pro, all those different positions as a pro, you brought that in to be a DS. But you've been able then to, especially with a guy like Mike, use that to coach him through, and especially on this stage. Has there been other moments like that, or is that something you'd like to, to think about with different riders, the psychology side of things? Is it, do you think about the psychology side of things? A lot. With you guys, it's uh, crucial. It's all, I mean, I'm, I'm, I never did the course a, psychologi a psychological course, but I'm using every time with you. Every time, I'm, I'm you as an athlete. You you are thinking all the time how good you are. Can I resist? Uh, which one is my next race? Uh, what is going to happen with my contract? Uh, how is my family at home? Everything is in your head, and it's something that we as DS is we need to be really on top of it. So sometimes you guys, uh, you are more open with us and you share more personal information with us because you want and we can understand you better. And um, so you are humans, you are athletes, but you are humans too and you have your own problems at home and uh, in your normal life, right? So to understand you, we need to really come into your head to see how are you thinking every time. And uh, like for example, now after the lockdown, we, the situation we have now is that probably you are going to be outside of your house for three weeks, five weeks, or even more, because you can't come back home and back again into the bubble that we have here now. The racing bubble, yeah. Yeah, the racing bubble. 
So uh, it's really important now to be really to communicate really a lot with you and uh, to to understand how you are thinking, how do you feel, if you feel comfortable with that situation. Because you are coming from a situation that you have been for three months, 24 hours a day with your family. Mm. And now you are away for five weeks. That's not easy. Mm. For, for Even for us, it's not easy for the DSS, but our job is to understand that. Is it, is it easy? Is it, I feel like sometimes I feel like sometimes even with myself, I would be easy and even other athletes because I sort of know what I want to hear and it seems very obvious. Maybe it might sound very obvious what you're saying. Like for instance, you see a rider and in this context it's going to sound really obvious but you see a rider, he's walking in and you say, oh, you're looking good mate. Have you you've been, looks like you've been training well. You know, you're, you're looking fit. That's it. And walk off. And like that comment there for a guy and even for myself from someone you respect a, a DS a, a director you're like yeah actually yeah it's so simple and it's so um, vain but that's sort of what you need as an athlete that little that little confidence boost is, are you thinking about those little comments every so often you or? know Mitch I said yes if I say something to you guys and I am wrong and fact. Mm. Uh, it's not that I can say to you every time I see you, ah, you look fit. No, of course not, because yeah. then it doesn't have any weight either. Exactly. But it's exactly the same as I said before, when I prepare the races and I am I, looking for the crucial point of the stage and I push you to be there at the right moment and in the right position uh, on the right timing, if I am wrong, Next time you are not gonna do the effort to be there as good, right? So I need to be sure that everything I I said to you is I'm I'm right. I know that I can do mistakes or whatever, but I I cannot start losing your uh, confidence on me. So that that's why I like to prepare everything really good because I I need, when I say something I'm sure that is right. Maybe I can be wrong, but I'm sure myself that I'm doing the right thing it's exactly the same when I see you and I see you motivated I'm gonna say to you you look motivated because if I if I'm just saying to you because I want to keep you more on high but you inside you are not motivated and I'm just saying to you because not because I'm I'm sure that you are motivated just because I want to make you happy I'm doing a mistake because you know that I'm I'm not right mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like I use it as a climber's example. You know, it's a climb. You know, I can't get over. It's a twenty k climb, and you might say something like, "Yeah, Mitch, you're going to get over this climb." Yeah. And I'm thinking, what, what a load of bullshit this is. I'm not going to get over that climb. Yeah. But on the flip side, there's a climb of seven k. And it's not right at the finish, but it's important to get over. And it's touch and go if I can get over that. And this is something that helps me a lot. If you go to me and you're thinking, this is something I've experienced on both sides. A director goes to me, he's thinking, I don't know this, but I'm guessing he's thinking, I'm going to negatively motivate this guy. Ah, don't think you're going to get over that, mate. Yeah, don't worry about it. Don't try. And maybe he's had this experience that inside he goes, 
that guy, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to get over that clone. For me, nine times out of ten, that doesn't work. Mm. I'll believe you, and I'll be like, well, Wamath said I'm not going to get over it. Once it gets hard, he didn't think I could do it, yeah. so I'm not going to. Flip side, you go to me in the morning, I think you can do it, mate. It's going to be tough, but I actually think you can make this climb. I don't think a lot of sprinters are going to make it, but I think you're going to make it. When it's getting tough, and I want to stop, 1K from the top, I'm thinking, fuck, he thinks I can do this. He thinks I can do this. And I'm going to push over. So that's for me, is that what you're sort of talking about, that, mm. the fine line? Uh, we need to be realistic. Yeah. All the time. You cannot lie. You cannot lie even... It's like when when you have a gap of 30 seconds and I am saying the radio, okay, one minute. It doesn't work, right? I mean, I can't say maybe 33 seconds, but not not a minute. So I, I can't lie in a way that I think I am motivating more you because sometimes you pass the line mm. and it has the opposite effect on you. What about in reverse to you? What worked for you as a rider? Yeah. If you can think back to the directors that worked for you and didn't work for you. For me, to have the responsibility to to see the race, to when I had that pressure, for example, I at the national team. I mean, Spain is a big country and a cycling, and uh, and uh, when you are the road captain in a national a Spanish national team, you have a big responsibility. And uh, I felt really comfortable with that. When the, when the Spanish coach he came and said, "Listen, you have the responsibility. You decide. Farmer is gonna decide. Uh, whatever he say, you are, we are gonna do that." Uh, and I felt good with that with that responsibility. But at the same time, when you when they are when the DS is not counting on you, like uh, that you expect something like a more more uh, pressure or more goals from the DS in a stage, in a mountain stage, whatever, like, okay, you need to arrive here and you need to do this job and you need to be with your leader until three k's to go and then push one kilometer hard and that's it. And when you don't have that, then it's like, and now what I do? Mm. So what would they expect from me? Nothing. They don't consider me anymore. Mm. You are, you, you know, you these things came to, to yeah, your mind. the internal dialogue. So yeah. you need to spend always some uh, words for everyone. Because if you miss one rider, even if you, even if I, I said yes, for example, I want to keep you quiet today. I don't want you to have any responsibility. Uh, and I want you to save as much as energy as possible because I, I'm going to use you tomorrow. I need to say that. I must to say that to you. In front of another, the other ones. Like, Mitch, this is gonna be your goal. Today, take it easy. Tomorrow, uh, we are, we go with you. Like like this. Today, you have a goal. Everyone ha- knows that you have it, and I'm not missing you. Exactly. When you're not doing anything, when you're sitting in the bunch, not getting bottles, whatever, everyone knows that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, and uh, everyone knows, but it's really good for you because if I don't say anything, even if at the end your fatigue is gonna be the same. At the end of the stage, if I don't say anything or I said what I said, uh, mentally you feel sure about what you are doing, and I have you ready for the day after. Even that stage, you are gonna think about the day after, and you are gonna start to work yourself. Like, wow, today I'm doing nothing. These guys are going up and down with bidons, so tomorrow I can't do a mistake. That's why sometimes the day after, the day before, we mention something for the day after. 
but it's like okay i know that now is the moment that this guy has to start to think about that apple final yeah we could go down a rabbit hole here but i think you've given us a really good insight to the psychology of a director and this is exactly what i'm talking to you about um to finish off run me through what you really love about the job and that moment that you go home because it's a lot of sacrifice away from the family and a lot of homework what's that point that brings you back every year that you've realized over the year you know what i really i really love this job what is it, what is it bringing you back first first of everything is cycling i mean you know what does mean how much we miss it uh, the race we had a couple of days ago strade bianche uh, we, we we miss it a lot and to to drive the car behind you without seeing the car in front of you have been between the cars a couple of days ago and it wasn't too bad <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't see anything right no nothing so the first thing i uh, i'm super happy is with that feeling and the second thing and i think the just, most sorry just to be involved in the the whole atmosphere of everything is something you missed from like if you were to stop racing and everything you miss that the circus you miss it yeah you miss it i uh i have been out for one year as i said before and i miss it really a lot and uh it's something that you have inside if you are not in you are missing yeah okay and but this the, the the most important thing is for me is to to put on the table the experience i i i had and I have as it is now and I had as a rider before for the next generations of riders mm. to teach the, the new guys or even you guys that you are already in the circus for years but to give you another perspective of everything mm. makes me really happy that but it makes me happy when you have people that want to listen mm. because I have been in the teams not, not as it is but yes as a, as a rider that they need they thought that they knew everything mm. and i'm super happy that i don't have guys like this in the team mm. guys i have like for example mike right he became professional really late and uh, but he was ready since the minute one to learn everything so everything i was saying to him he was just keeping for him and for me it was super grateful grateful is it yeah yeah to grateful, yeah. yeah to to say something to him and to see how he's he applying or how is he using that experience and then you go back home it's like wow i think we did, I did something really good you know that and to see how a guy is growing up and you are in contact with and uh, i mean everything yeah especially that it push it sounds like it just pushes you to be a better person as a, as in your job but also you're thinking outside the box because you've got someone else relying on you when someone listens to you and they take it on it puts a nice amount of pressure. I better actually say the right thing, you know, I mean, not, and it's, it's beautiful. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. I've listened to that one a few times back over because I just love hearing how he talks about it, how he breaks it all down, the way he deals with us as riders. And I can just see it's a reflection on his own career, 
the way he was as a rider. I would have, I did race against him, but I didn't know him at that point. I would have loved to have ridden in a team with him as a road captain underneath him, just to see that the way that he was on the road, because he was a bit of a talent himself as a rider. And with that head on him, he would have been a great pro to be around. I hope you really enjoyed that episode. I hope the audio wasn't too bad there and you could get through it and listen to it. Stay tuned. There's some caps coming up. Life in the Peloton has made some more caps. So coming up at the end of this month, we've got some more caps be released. So until then, guys, cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.